Thank you for choosing OECD Podcast. Welcome to OEC Podcasts. I'm Clara Young, and I'm here in the studio with Sophie Petter, who is here at the OECD for a talk and a signing of her new book, Révolution Française, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. Sophie is also the Paris Bureau Chief of The Economist, so thanks for coming in, Sophie. Thank you for inviting me. Your book tells the story of the current French President Emmanuel Macron, and one of the many things you discuss is how smoothly he pushed through labor reform as soon as he came into power in 2017. But you wrote a sentence that was incredibly prescient. It would be premature to suggest that Macron has turned the page on theatrical conflict resolution in France. If there's one thing we can say about the ongoing Gilets jaunes or Yellow Vest protests here in France is that they're theatrical. Yes, I think, you know, we've seen scenes that are both uh, of, of incredible violence and scenes that have been much more uh, encouraging. You know, it's been the peaceful protesters right at the beginning who came out and took part in demonstrations because they genuinely felt that they had a, a case to make. And um, this was a, against the eco-tax. But uh, we've subsequently... The eco-tax, the, the, the fuel tax. An eco-tax yeah. on fuel, exactly. Mm-hmm. And subsequently, we've seen that evolve in various directions, one of them in a very violent direction. So I think, you know, theatrical may not be the word that one would really choose now. Uh, the, the violence has become very hardcore in some cases, orchestrated uh, in some cases, the work of really kind of ultra uh, violent minorities. So I think you have to be quite careful about the way in which you would use that that word. But it's certainly been very dramatic. And um, I think that uh, the scale of the violence of uh, the dramatic nature of the violence has taken a lot of people uh, really aback. Uh, it's been so dramatic that there have been similar or sympathy gilets jaunes protests in other countries like Belgium and the Netherlands and most recently in the UK and even in Western Canada where I'm from. Does that mean that the gilets jaunes is not only a French phenomenon? It's very interesting when you look at uh, the nature of that protest. I mean, if you take apart the violent uh, sort of side to it and you go back to the origins, the people that I uh, spoke to, for example, on the roundabouts in places like Normandy uh, in November 2018, this was very much a protest by a demographic that is a working. They are, this is not unemployed. This is not people at the very extreme end of the income scale. These are people who do have jobs, who get up early, who are driving long distances, who felt that their budgets were really being squeezed by the rise in the fuel tax. And that sort of demographic is exactly the same one, I would say, that is behind, for example, some of the vote uh, in, for Brexit in the UK. They're probably some of Trump's supporters in in, in parts of the Rust Belt in the US. These are people who feel that they have been squeezed by globalization, not necessarily put out of their jobs, but fearful about that 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 might happen in the future. And a feeling that, you know, they are finding it very difficult to make ends meet and that they don't really have any prospects for improving that situation. So I think in that respect, there are some very clear structural similarities with other countries. There's also something that comes up again and again with the protesters is the notion of physical isolation. And in chapter eight of your book, which you called Fractured France, you begin with a quote from the French demographer Hervé Lebras. He says, the further you live from an SNCF train station, the more likely you are to vote National Front, which is France's long running far right political party. This description of the National Front fits the description of people who uh, need their cars, who engage in these protests. 
I think that what the Gilets Jaunes, where they come from and in, in a sort of geographic sense, are those regions, they're not just the regions that have been um, hit and sort of battered by deindustrialization, although that is part of the story. They are the regions that are, uh, you know, uh, not, they're far from the big cities. So you're not talking about these thriving metropolitan areas where all the creative industries exist in France that have really seen a kind of embrace of, of tech and where job creation is very strong. These are sort of semi-rural, semi-urban, they're not farmers, but they live in those sort of semi-rural areas which are very poorly served by public transport, such as the trains, that they've probably lost uh, doctors and doctor surgeries, they've probably lost the pharmacy, maybe the baker has closed down, that they feel that there's a sort of the, the fabric of social life has sort of been emptied out. And that's why they're dependent on cars. You know, these are not people who depend on public transport, they depend on cars because they have to. And that is exactly this demographic that Gilets Jaunes come from. Who they support is another question. And it's been quite difficult to get a sense of that because, uh, you know, you're having to go on and go and conduct polls in the, uh, among Gilets Jaunes, which not very many uh, studies have been done of that. But it seems to be that if they support anyone, they are supporting, first of all, the extremes, but most of all, the extreme, uh, for extreme right in France. So Marine Le Pen is most likely to be the political beneficiary uh, among established politicians. Marine Le Pen, who is the leader of the National Front... Besides this feeling of abandonment that we hear, there's also the feeling of being ignored by the elite. Uh, The government has kicked off a series of town hall debates throughout France that will last a few months. What can you tell us about this? Well, I see this, you know, as primarily a political response to the Gilets Jaunes protests. I mean, it's interesting because if you think back to Emmanuel Macron when he set up En Marche, his political party, back in 2016, uh, only a year before he was elected president, he set it up from nothing. One of the things he did right at the beginning was go out and talk to people. So he sent out all his uh, sort of helpers or supporters, people who wanted to help him create this party, onto the ground to ask people, you know, what's wrong with France? What's wrong with politicians? What should we be doing more of. So the, it, was very, it was in their DNA, this, this idea of consulting, of asking people. In the DNA of the party. Of or, the party, mm-hmm. before the election. Once he was in power, that element seemed to have got lost. You know, they just there's no more consultation seemed to take place. It was all about implementing the programme. And I think what Macron is trying to do is to reconnect with that original culture behind En Marche and to show that he's not just the sort of haughty, um, uh, you know, almost monarch-like president who sits on high, but he's actually listening to people. So it is a political exercise. It's going to involve consultations in town halls. It's going to involve uh, online forums where you can make comments, come up with ideas. You can send them by letter if you want to and put a stamp on your envelope. Or you can go, there will be in shopping centres and in uh, railway stations, there'll be stands where you can go and, and, and express your ideas. I mean, the great difficulty with this debate is at the end of it, what do you do with all of this? Uh, it's great to ask everybody what they think. You're going to end up with millions of answers. Many of them will be contradictory or conflicting and they will involve choices. So uh, the great skill is uh, and challenge really for the government and for the president at the end of this exercise is to find some way of showing that you have taken it seriously in a way that doesn't you know, undermine your capacity for political action. Much of the questions or the issues that will be brought up probably will be around jobs. The geographer whom you quote in your book, Christophe Guilly, He said in an interview about the Gilets Jaunes, for the first time, workers no longer live where employment is created. This has given rise to a social and cultural shock. 
Now, about that, the OECD has a surprising statistic about unemployment and global trade. And that is 10% of regions in OECD countries that shifted their economy towards goods and services that aren't internationally tradable lost the most jobs after the 2008 crisis, like 2.9% annually. So maybe we should be creating more globally tradable service jobs, like data processing and marketing. These kinds of jobs drove growth by an average of 2.5% a year in economically strong European regions between 2000 and 2013. What have you observed? I mean, this is the challenge, isn't it, is what sort of jobs are going to be created in these areas. And I think it's important to go back to this original question of what is the demographic behind the gilets jaunes and what is really the complaint. In a lot of cases, most of the cases, these people are working. They aren't those who have lost their jobs. They're not necessarily those. They feel that they are doing everything right, as it were. They are working. They're getting up early. They're driving their cars to work and they're doing everything they can. But at the end of the day, they aren't receiving much in the way of benefits and that they feel that they are being taxed more than those on higher incomes, at least they're feeling more squeezed. So in a way, I'm not sure that it's even about just creating jobs or uh, creating jobs, you know, closer to home. It's also about giving these particular population a sense that things can improve. And it's maybe about prospects and about mobility. And again, it's interesting to go back to Emmanuel Macron's original political philosophy and where he was coming from, because he's so often caricatured, I think, as sort of president of the rich who's only interested in business and corporate profits and the 1%. But his underlying kind of political philosophy is very much anchored on the social democratic centre-left, and it's about investing in people to improve social mobility and try and invest in education, in training, in apprenticeships. And I think he got the analysis absolutely right. He doesn't seem yet to have found a way of putting that into policy, at least that delivers those results. So I'm not sure that it's about necessarily creating jobs as much as creating the conditions in which people can themselves, you know, see a real chance that their lives will improve or that the next generation will improve. One improvement for people who live in remote areas would be to have cell phone access. You mentioned in your book that the French government has pressured mobile operators to extend their 4G networks to remote areas. Has that happened? It is happening, and it's one of the things that En Marche and Emmanuel Macron identified as precisely the sort of issue that they needed to address if they were going to reduce that sense of isolation in these areas. I mean, they were, I think, quite lucid in their analysis of what I've called fractured France in my book. And I think that, you know, if you go back and you read some of the speeches that Macron made during the campaign, he was quite aware of this divide and of the issues. And in fact, he made, uh, as a junior minister, one of his closest advisors, a junior minister for, for what he called territorial cohesion. And that was precisely to get him to work on some of these issues about putting public services back into this, these sort of second tier towns or rural areas. So I think they have tried to do some of the things that they needed to do, but it's... The, the like great, what, for example? Well, making sure that you have doctors who are uh, assigned... To, some of the doctors in France have the right to set themselves up wherever they want. You know, mm-hmm. it's not a sort of uh, a centralised system. So if you don't want to live and work as a doctor in a rural area, you don't have any doctors. So it's working on those sorts of things to make sure that there are actually rural clinics which are accessible. Uh, or, I mean, 4G networks is another one, making sure... That 
that mobile networks work so that people don't feel cut off. But I think the difficulty is that public policy is very thin when it comes to addressing these issues. Not every town can have a services industry or a uh, you know a call centre, and 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 arguably that may not be what they what, what's the the best sort of solution for for some of these people either uh, for the, the the sort of skill set that they have. So it's a challenging question, and not just for France. How to address those who feel in that they are in sort of abandoned territories, left behind, and no longer the central concern of the political class is a question for all Western democracies. Thank you very much, Sophie. And uh, congratulations again on your book, Révolution Française, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. It's a real primer for anyone who wants to get an in-depth understanding of the wheels that are turning in France right now. And thank you all for listening to OECD Podcasts. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on regional development, why not go on OECD's iLibrary and type in productivity and jobs in a globalized world. And if you want to listen to our other podcasts, check out OECD Podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and SoundCloud slash OECD. Thank you.